We're going to come out of the EU on October the 31st. No ifs or buts. But we've just lost four elections in a row. We've got a mountain to climb. You cannot hold Scotland in the Union against its will. This advice is not a request. It is an instruction. Stay at home. Protect lives. People are dying. Entire ecosystems are collapsing. Can I'm you, not going to give you a can question. You stay, can you stay categorical? You are fake news. Sir. Hello and welcome to Politics at the Edge from the University of East Anglia. I'm Claire Preecy and like everyone else who can, I'm working from home. So hopefully the technology will work and the Wi-Fi won't let me down this time. With me as usual remotely, of course, Professor Alan Finlayson, who wrote in The Guardian this week that Dominic Cummings' behaviour can be explained because he believes he's on a different planet to the rest of us. How do you work that one out? <laughs> well, actually, it was a Daily Mail that said that. I just explained more about the planet that he was actually on. Um, no, the point I wanted to make was that the way people in politics behave has something to do with their political thinking, their political philosophy and political theory, even though we're in a political situation characterised by something that's bio biological, um, that's about science and it's about the spread of an infection. To understand how government behaves, one of the things we have to understand is how they think about politics and how they think about government. OK, uh, thank you. Well, we're joined this week by um, Ian Harvey, who's an emeritus professor of epidemiology and public health at UEA, to talk about the UK's response to the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, and I wanted to start by asking Ian Harvey, It's COVID-19 has been such a, a huge impact on all of our lives the scale and the severity of it. Was it a surprise to you in the public health community or, or were you expecting something like this? Well, some sort of pandemic infection was always top of the risk register for, for the world, in a sense. Uh, most countries identified it as a big, big risk. Um, so in one respect, not a surprise, but in other respects, I don't think anybody quite believes it's going to happen. And there'd been, if you like, so several false alarms over the last 20 years. Uh, SARS, swine flu, MERS, which were all viruses which initially could have turned out to be extremely nasty, but which in fact, for various biological reasons, turned out to be less of a threat. And I think probably over that period of time, a certain degree of complacency crept in. Um, that this was, uh, you know, a bit of shroud waving, perhaps, by the biologists and the virologists, and it wouldn't really happen. Alan, do you think, from a political perspective, did it look to you like the Johnson government were taken by surprise? Yes, it certainly seems like that. And to be fair to them, you can understand why. They'd only recently got elected. They were still getting used to being in office, being in power. They were preoccupied by Brexit and planning things around the negotiations that are still taking place in the background. So I think there was perhaps uh, an understandable, in a sense, reluctance to to take the, to look at something else and take it quite as seriously as it could have been. I think there are good reasons for, for, for criticising them for that, but you can also understand how and why that happened. Ah, the inevitable phone goes off. It's bound to happen. Um, <laughs> I, I wanted to ask Ian Harvey, I mean, from, from somebody who's kind of outside public health like me, I look at the figure of, I mean, we're at, at the moment about nearly 40,000 people dead in the UK, the second highest death toll in the world. And it looks as if something somewhere has gone horribly, horribly wrong. Do you do you think that's the case? And, and what can we learn from it? Uh, yes, I think in some respects, things have not gone well. I, I was at, at the beginning of the outbreak, somebody said to me, what score would you give the government out of 10? And I at the time said seven. I did the same thing yesterday for an online survey and I gave them four. And I think that things have, in a sense, got less good as the, as the thing's gone on. 
And clearly, however you cut it, and you're looking at excess mortality data, which are beginning to emerge, and there's a very good article in The Economist this week showing the excess mortality across different countries. However you cut it, the UK is going to come out of this pretty badly. You then go on to say, well, why? And I think, I mean, I'd start off by saying nobody would want to be in the position of either the scientists or the politicians trying to deal with this. But I think you can look at the critical period in early March when it seemed fairly obvious that things were getting out of control in other European countries. Yet the UK government, for some reason, didn't do anything for a crucial 10 or 12 days. They stopped testing and tracking. They went for this mitigation approach, but they could and should, in my view, have locked down 10 or so days earlier. What would have been the impact if they if they had done that, if they'd locked down sooner? Well, if you look at the, the data that have come out, the, the doubling time, the time it took for cases to double in the UK at that time was about two to three days. And so if you delay, and it's easy to understand how government delays and you look at some of the sage minutes and you see that they were talking about well let's have a meeting next Monday and then let's think about it again the next day the trouble is for every 10 days you wait the epidemic has doubled four times over so it's gone up eight times in that period and I think if you if you'd locked down 10 days earlier it's quite likely that the number of cases and hence the mortality would have been around about one-eighth of the eventual size. That's an incredible figure, isn't it? One, and one you're then talking the, about something which is deaths. much closer to Germany than to the United States, Italy and Spain. Yes, uh, and I think that's probably what people weren't realising was just that it, this was a wildfire. It wasn't just a slowly developing problem. Um, and the failure to appreciate that and quite possibly the failure to effectively convey it by the scientists, um, I think, has, has led to the problem being larger than it, than it need otherwise have been. So I, I mentioned in as a political scientist, we try to explain why politicians take decisions or don't take decisions. So my instinct might be to say, well, the government delayed because it had other things in its mind it, it, mm. or its political kind of way of looking at the world meant it didn't want to take it seriously. Is that fair? Or do you think there was really issues going on how it was understood medically that people were thinking it wasn't as bad, it was more like SARS and, and other experiences? Was there a slowness in the medical scientific community to really grasp what was going on? I think the SAGE minutes that I've looked at this week that have been released, and there have been lots and lots of them, so it's, I haven't read all of them, but my impression is that by early March, the SAGE group realised that things were running out of control. And although the minutes are written in sort of typical civil service speak, there's a sense there that there was a, 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 bit, of, a bit of urgency developing. So, now, the eventual inquiry, I guess, might be able to dissect out what was said, when, by whom, and then how do people respond? And I'm sure government was thinking, you know, the economic impact uh, and indeed the libertarian tendencies of key politicians um, may well have contributed to that reluctance to take that, 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 that big decision. Uh, but I think you, you can look at that delay and say it was, pre it was pretty damaging. Looking back in the longer term, I was reading in The Guardian over the weekend that over the last 10 years or so, there's been a number of 
governmental reorganisations of public health, such as the abolition of strategic health authorities and folding um, public health into local councils. And that, alongside austerity, um, they were saying, had put the UK in a place where it just wasn't ready. It didn't have the national infrastructure to deal with a global pandemic. Do you think that's right? Uh, in, in part, yes. I think yeah, p- the public health function got split effectively between Public Health England, which is a national agency for England, and directors of public health located in local government. And because of the tendency, almost inevitably, for different organisations of government not to speak to each other very effectively, the NHS and local government don't always liaise very well, uh, I think that's led to fragmentation. And I know directors of public health have felt excluded from a lot of the arrangements around um, COVID. Um, now, Public Health England could, in principle, have, have been a very, very effective and very skillful central organisation. Um, I think there's probably been a sort of fatal fragmentation though, uh, of responsibility between the, the different components of this response, Public Health England, the NHS, the Department of Health and Social Care and local government, with a sense in my mind that nobody was actually taking control and pulling all the strings in a coordinated way. And you've got some evidence emerging of, you know, Public Health England have put out a, put out a, a statement through gov.uk some weeks ago uh, in which they basically saying that the failure to get the testing increased uh, wasn't wasn't their fault you know not my fault gov it was down to the office of life sciences which is a different part of the department of health so there's already a sense that you know organizations are covering their tracks and trying to make clear that it wasn't their responsibility to sort something out you've got to move more quickly than that in a crisis like this Um, so i think yeah, organisationally, there were some good things about the, the, the British arrangement, but there were also some, some weaknesses. And the location of public health in local government, I think, in the event, proves to have been one of the big weaknesses. That's really, that's really interesting to, to, to think about the ways in which how we design institutions and how they communicate with each other kind of really shows its, its, uh, its failings in this kind of context. Maybe in that context, can we, can we talk a little bit more about sage really we discussed yeah. it already but in in in, in, a, in a couple of ways it, how well is sage working do you think i mean is is it able to provide the evidence the arguments the findings that government needs does it have the, the power it has or is it missing key voices and some authority figures who can really direct things yeah i, I think if you, if you look at the people who were regularly attending sage and the membership of it has fluctuated according to the minutes that have been released but there's a fairly heavy preponderance of people you might say were in the civil service payroll in some shape or form. So there are chief medical officers, chief scientific advisor, the chief scientific advisors for many of the um, departments of state, people from Public Health England, and then some academics. Um, and, and in a sense, on, there is a, there's a wide range of skills in that group. But one thing I think you could identify is that there's a shortage probably of what I'd call shoe leather epidemiologists, the sort of people who have handled uh, real epidemics on the ground, either in the UK or overseas, um, with some notable exceptions. I mean, Chris Whitty, the chief medical officer, is very well known in the field and has done a, a lot of field work. But an awful lot of the people there are, uh, you know, scientific advisors to, to, to government departments. And one wouldn't, in a sense, expect them to necessarily know a huge amount about the background to this. They'll be there primarily, I guess, to take messages back to their host department. Um, 
but it does raise in my mind whether there was quite the breadth of, of skills within Sage that one might be looking for. That's really interesting. So, you, so it it was full of people very skilled in the kind of the intellectual reasoning of, about things, understanding the science, but not necessarily yeah. able to advise on how to translate that into concrete and effective action. I think that's that's an inference you could draw. Yes. Yeah, and, and that might link in then with the pace of activity and the pace pace of response. But also, I wonder, do, does it raise a question about the kinds of people that are brought in to advise in this kind of emergency situation? In that, if if we're obviously we need the scientific and medical medical expertise, but does, does it also need to involve people who can think about well, how do you actually make testing happen? How do you coordinate yeah. and organise that kind of action? How yeah. do you bring the bring the people together with the equipment that is needed is there a need for sort of maybe engineering logistics kinds of people as well or would that just mess it all up no i i i think sort of that that voice seems to have been lacking the 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 question of how when you want to increase testing as indeed as, as quite rightly we needed to do i mean our testing capacity at the beginning was was too low that's why we had to abandon test and trace on march the 12th but the question of well who was actually in charge of increasing that capacity uh, there are obviously anecdotal stories of university and research laboratories having offered to participate in the testing program and their offers simply not being responded to um, and so you you fear i fear that there were offers of, of to, to help in this process that were just being absorbed in the system without anybody really grasping control of it and that's where somebody with an ability to cut through and think on their feet swiftly was probably lacking. We, we've mentioned PPE and I, and, I, and I wondered if that's one of the areas where we feel that the government's been a bit out of touch with what's been really going on in the ground because you see them come up in the daily briefings and saying actually yes we've got the PPE, we're doing this, we're doing that but a lot of um, nurses and doctors, other healthcare workers were um, saying actually no we don't have enough. Um, and I wonder, actually, to both of you, is there a feeling that the government has been out of touch with what's been going on on the ground? Well, it depends what you mean by on the ground. I think, I think on the one hand, uh, government has been very focused on trying to think about individual voters' attitudes and how it's affecting things, but also, to, to be fair, how, um, how people might respond to the various calls for lockdown. So I think there's a lot of, lot, lot of concern about will people follow the rules how do we explain the rules? How do we get people to take all of this kind of seriously? Which is obviously very important. Getting a public health message out there that affects people's behaviour is a key part of the, the whole process. But I think maybe there was a more of a focus on that and on that sort of media communication strategy, if you like, and less of a focus on a different part of what's on the ground, which is the kind of people who could be helping to implement policy at the level of whether it's making ventilators and PPE or coordinating things at the local level the kind of gaps that Ian was talking about earlier in terms of local public health provision seem to have been really quite large. But the communication's been a mess, hasn't it? I mean, it's it's been. I mean, it was it was okay in the beginning when it was stay home, save lives, protect the NHS, and then it just sort of fell apart. I think that my sense is that the communication has been far too much about soothing and reassuring, and not enough about simply accepting that the voices on the ground were sometimes speaking the truth. Okay people have access to grind and so on and so forth but I think uh, it's quite clear that many health and particularly social care workers did not have access to PPE and there was no point pretending that everything was well when it clearly wasn't and I think many politicians have come out of this 
pretty badly in terms of denial of the blindingly obvious. I think some of the health and scientific professionals haven't come out of it fantastically well either. Uh, I was very frustrated even from the very beginning by the tenor of the daily briefings. Uh, there was a certain lack of, there was, an, there was a sense of evasiveness was my perception of much of the answering of questions. And I was, I was moved to, to email various people to say that it was a shame that the, the so-called duty of candor that the health service is supposed to have adopted after things like Mid-Staffordshire and so on didn't seem to be pervading the daily briefings. It didn't feel to me as if candor was the order of the day. Um, and so I think to give him his due, um, Matt Hancock, who you know, has come out of this for me relatively well in the sense that at least he made a decision about the testing. I am now setting the goal of 100,000 tests per day by the end of this month. That is the goal, and I am determined that we will get there. And now the target may have been somewhat arbitrary, but he clearly realised that the amount of testing had to be increased, and something clearly happened as a consequence of that. Um, but I think too many of the politicians and the scientists have been too keen to soothe people's anxieties and not to simply confront the reality. When you talk about candour, we've had a bit of a lack of that in the last week or so, Alan, haven't we? Because we've had the whole explosion of the Dominic Cummings affair where um, a lot of people have been very angry. And it, what struck me about it was that I had people emailing me or messaging me Dominic Cummings memes, people who would not normally be engaging with politics. And this has really struck a chord, hasn't it? I think it has. And I think it's, I think it's connected to what Ian's just been saying, that the, there has been this lack of candour from politicians. But actually what seems to have happened is that the public has been quite keen and willing to engage and to understand and try to do what is needed. Mm. Uh, if we go back to the beginning, people were beginning to withdraw and socially distance and calling for schools and so forth to be closed before the government actually did that. So I think government underestimated people's willingness. I suspect, this is just a suspicion, I think it underestimated people's ability to understand what was going. But actually, I think a lot of people are familiar with the idea of pandemics. We've seen it on the news. We've seen it in movies. We get, we might not all know, understand the biochemistry, but we get the idea of it. And people could have, I think, been, been told things, you know, in, perhaps in a, in a more blunt way, in, in a way that was honest about the difficulties. I do think mm. if government had come out and said, look, we're sorry, this is taking longer, it's very hard. I think for a while people were willing to understand that, although that's just a no-no from political communications. You can't say, look, we're going to get there, but it's going to take a bit of a long time. I wonder if Dominic Cummings had come out and said, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done it, I panicked, I was worried, then other people might have got behind him and gone, well, OK, we sort of understand it. They might have got behind him, but I think the reason why the reaction is so great was precisely because... They, they, they saw that people had, as it were, without being asked, tried to comply with the regulations, to do what was best, to, to make some sacrifices. And they felt that here was somebody who was not making those sacrifices, was doing things off their own bat. Whatever the rights or wrongs of that actual situation, that was how it appeared. And his response to it certainly kind of confirmed that, I think, that, that they, really wasn't, they weren't thinking about it or experiencing it in, in the same way that all of us were. And we weren't being treated like adults who can understand and respond and think for ourselves and still and do the right thing. Mm. So earlier, Ian, you talked about the universities and whether or not they'd, they'd offered or been asked to supply equipment and so forth. Yeah. That's something I'm very interested in because, uh, uh, correct me if I'm wrong here, but one of the things that was successful in Germany 
was that they were quite rapidly able to draw on regional suppliers, including mm. universities and others, to produce the equipment they needed for PPE, for testing and so forth. And that seems yeah. not to have happened here. Um, and I sometimes tell, tell people I think that universities do have a capacity to deliver things they haven't been properly asked for. It, yeah. Am I right about that? Do we have that capacity? Could, could we have been used more in different kinds of ways? I think we probably do. I don't know that Germany is uniquely well endowed with research laboratories and university laboratories to do this work. I think uh, because the German system, as I understand it, is much more um, based on the lender and is less centralised, uh, there was a willingness to let local regional solutions be found. Um, and, you know, anecdotally, I think a lot of research institutes and universities were offering in the UK, but for some reason they were not taken up on them. Um, I mean, the Crick Institute in London was one of the early groups that went public to say that they'd offered, and they rather belatedly got involved. Uh, the, the Quadrum Institute in, in Norwich is involved now in testing, but it's taken quite a long time for those uh, labs to be accepted into the system. Um, so yeah, I, I don't think the Germans had a huge head start on us. I think they were just more willing to harness that enthusiasm earlier on. So this week we've had an easing of lockdown in the UK, um, but at the same time the Association of Directors of Public Health have been warning that it was misjudged and going too far too fast. I wonder, Ian, do you agree with them? And, and, and what about this second spike? What can we expect? I'm, I'm inclined to agree with the, the A's DPH. I think that we're probably moving too soon. The, the estimates from the Office of National Statistics is that there are something of the order of 8,000 8, new cases a day in the UK. And if you rely then on the testing and tracing system. You've got to contact 8,000 people each day and contact all their contacts. And I think most people feel that's too many. Um, I think most people would have felt much more comfortable if it was down around about the 1 to 2,000. Now we're getting 10 to 2,000 new cases tested positive each day, but of course that is only a fraction of the total new cases. So I think, uh, I don't think the five tests, um, whether they were important in the thinking of politicians or not, I'm not sure, but I don't think the five tests have really been met. Um, so I would have, I would have delayed. Um, and we will see what happens. Um, but I mean, obviously I hope it doesn't, it doesn't take off and it continues to go downwards, but there is an, there is an element of risk. Well, I've read, and this, here I am beyond my knowledge base here, I've just read arguments, some of them from historians actually, that, that, that often with epidemics there is a second spike and it's worse than the first spike. Yeah. Um, is, that, is that the case and should, so should we be very worried about that? Well, I don't think it's inherently the case that second spikes are always worse than the first, but certainly our historical pre historic precedents. I mean, the 1918 flu pandemic, the, the second wave in the autumn of 1918 was the worst wave. And so, um, you know, the modelling would suggest there clearly can be a second spike if we just let things rip. So relaxing the measures has to be done in a carefully monitored way. Um, and I, that goes back to the testing regime. If everybody who feels unwell can easily get tested locally, uh, then we will at least know what the numbers are like. But if people have to drive 40 or 50 miles 
to get a test or alternatively have to self-administer it using one that's sent through the post. And, you know, it's not entirely straightforward to do the swabbing on yourself or on a family member. If you don't have that testing done accurately, then you will not really be able to monitor what's going on, and whether things are getting worse. So that, that, that is at the root of my, my concerns. And is there a problem that, that, that uh, people sort of become a little bit complacent, that, that we've gone through one period, we came out of it, we feel okay, we think we've done our bit, that we then sort of loot, drop our guard a little bit and go out and do things yeah. that, that are risky? I mean, I'm sure that's that's likely to happen, but I think it's been compounded by the way in which, um, you know, politicians have presented the relaxation to the public. So, you know, feeding it to the media and then the media presenting it as what well, today is Happy Monday. Yeah. Uh, that is not a clever way, it seems to me, of relaxing the lockdown in a, in a, in a controlled way. Um, it's it's almost inevitably, I think, going to lead to people going beyond, quite possibly far beyond what the actual rules allow today. Um, and that's very risky. Clearly, we're in a better place than we were in early April. Uh, the lockdown has worked. Um, but the rate of decline of the number of new cases and also of deaths is probably, I suspect, not coming down as swiftly as had been hoped. Uh, but, you know, the analogy is used that, again, going back to fires and firefighting, fires take off rapidly, but they, the embers burn for a long time. And that's the case with a, pan, a pandemic like this. To get the, the curve to come down as swiftly as it went up, you would have to have an R value of around about 0.25. Now, we are not at that level, even with full lockdown, the R value is probably 0.5 to 0.7. So it's almost inevitable it's going to come down more slowly than it went up. And we'll presumably we'll feel the impacts of this for at least a year? I think so. I don't think that, you know, again, going back to historic precedence, the, the, the flu pandemic went on in 1918 for around about 18 months, two years. Now, you know, viruses like this have a habit of eventually becoming incorporated as an endemic feature. So there are coronaviruses which are simply endemic. And quite probably they started in history in the same way that this one has done. Um, but for the first, for a year or two, they will have had a large impact. And I think this one will prove no different. Can I ask just one more? Because because uh, mm. I, I have a live medical scientist on my computer. Um, <laughs> And I read these things, occasionally papers that say, I mean, obviously it's a novel coronavirus, so yep. it's new to us. But then I read some things that say, oh, it's quite mysterious. It does these things we've never seen before. Mm. Uh, we're not quite sure how it works. How, how true is that? Are there lots of things that we still just don't know about it you know, biochemically and how it works and what it does? Or are we sort of basically familiar with it? It's just some of the, some of the things we need to get clear on exactly how it transmits and so forth. I think the starting point was a thought that this virus was simply going to attack the respiratory tract. Now, it's not alone in attacking other organs. Other viruses can cause inflammation of the heart, for example. Um, and corona, this coronavirus seems to do the same thing. It also seems to attack sometimes small blood vessels, sometimes the kidneys, and sometimes even the brain. And the effect on sense of smell is thought to be a, a direct attack, perhaps, yeah. on the nerves. But 
it's not unique in amongst viruses in having this potential to not just attack your respiratory tract but it's certainly at the nastier end of the spectrum in terms of the damage and the inflammation it causes there's no doubt lots there to to talk about and i'm sure we're going to be talking about this a lot more over the over the coming months and maybe even years so um thank you very much professor ian harvey for making the time to talk to us um thanks as always to bbc sky reuters itv the guardian and channel 4 for our news clips in our intro and we'll be back soon with more but that's all for now so thanks for listening